Jesus, you are the one who is reconciling all things to yourself. And we confess in this room that we desperately need your reconciliation. We are a people who have experienced and continue to witness division and chaos, both in our culture, in our world, in our politics, in our news, in our sports teams, in our schools, even within our own selves. And so we ask, Lord, of reconciliation, the one who is making all things new and who are bringing it all together, that you would do what only you can do. And we ask and we trust and we know that you cannot do it anywhere else first but then in us. And so as individuals gathered and as a congregation collective, we ask for your reconciliation power and grace to be among us. We know that your kingdom doesn't fall from on high like a stamp burying everything that doesn't fit underneath. That's not how you operate. But you grow up slowly and surely. This is the kingdom that Jesus invites us into. And so, Lord, we ask that you would use us, that your seeds of kingdom reconciliation would grow in us and that we would take them everywhere we go. We ask for our sister, our pastor, our friend, Lena, as she comes to preach your word to us, that the fire within her own heart would leap into ours. We ask that we would, con- we would see you and hear you and understand in ways that we haven't before so that we can obey in ways that we haven't before. And we ask this in the name and spirit of Christ. Amen. Good evening. Is this working? How's my hair? <laughs> I feel like it's all matted down. I got to my seat and my husband Kendall's like, fix this here. And I said, this is the first time you've ever tried to fix my hair. I'm like, wow, you paid so much attention tonight. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Pastor Mikhail. Um, Just the embodiment of love that has come from you and your husband, Brent, and just the way that um, we have felt belonging here. I almost hesitated, and I thought I would say welcomed, but I, but I had to go a little deeper with that. When we went, went, met with Pastor Chris and Holly um, several weeks ago, I left dinner and I said to Pastor Chris, I said, I feel like 8th Street Church just fits. It just fits. It fits like an old coat that you put on and you put your hand in the pocket, and there's that old tissue that's still sitting in there, right? And a couple of gum wrappers, maybe a few little miscellaneous items that you don't know why they're there, but you just know this is my coat. Um, I know that that was very touching to Chris and Holly. Um, I wasn't trying to impress them. For you see, Kendall and I have been on a journey to find places and spaces that fit us. If you haven't noticed, I am brown, and my husband is not. This is one time I'm going to say I'm, I'm brown and he's not brown instead of the other way around. Um, we have lived in an intercultural marriage for a long time. 
We've known each other for 36 years. My journey is from Hinduism to Christ. His is from a rural community of a small town in Ohio, being a good Christian boy without having a relationship with Christ, a longing to know the world outside of that place of 2,000 people, and yet not being welcomed to actually go and explore the world, even with the longing to join the Peace Corps, which he wasn't even sure how he got that. He would, he would lay up under the stars and just know that there was a world out there that he wanted to, to see. I like to over-romanticize it and say, yes, you were longing to meet me, but that's my version and I'm sticking to it. We don't have time tonight for me to give you the entire narrative of the journey, but tonight I do want to share with you just a few parts of it intertwined in the passage that we are going to look at tonight. This passage is glorious, but isn't the entire word of God glorious? But I do stand before you now in a place of healing, for I carried a lot of shame of being raised in a Hindu home. I thought that that was bad and wrong when I came into the understanding that Christianity was the way to go. I thought, how could I have worshipped many gods? What a tragic, pathetic little creature I was. And I tried so hard to overcome that shame. But then in Christ's love, he said, claim it as yours. It is your story. It is a story that I wrote on your heart. For you were born in India. Why would there be any reason that you would embody any other religion but the religion of India? You carry no shame. Because you see, even though you may have been worshiping many gods, I was already coming to you with my pure and holy love for all of my people everywhere, anywhere on this place called planet Earth. So I am going to try to embody the um, cultural um, activities and behaviors that are part of 8th Street Church. I'm still having to read things. I still don't have all of the language yet or the behaviors. I confess that I turned to Mikhail the other day while we were having lunch, and I said, can you do all the like little things that are so unique that we love about 8th Street, but that I don't know how to do yet? She said, I'll do whatever you want. I said, can you just introduce me and I'll preach? She said, yeah, but do you want to pray too? (laughs) So, um, the message today is entitled, Courage, the Embodiment of Faith, Seared on the anvil of inclusive love. That was the largest font I had, and I have to put these on. <laughs> Whew, my age is upon me. Um, can we move directly into the text, which will be Mark 7, 24 through 37? And if you need a Bible, as we say at 8th Street Church, let us know now, and someone will bring you one to keep or to use this evening. How is that? <laughs> But we will be reading from the text of Mark 7, 24 through 37. And could we stand, if you are able, could we stand to read God's word together? Mark 7, 24 through 37. The translation that I will be reading is from the New Living Translation. I believe that it will be up there, if I'm not mistaken. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. 
Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged, she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Then we move on. Jesus heals a deaf man. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could quickly, excuse me, so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those he cannot, who cannot speak. May God bless his word today. You may be seated. Now, if it appears that I'm going to be racing furiously through this message, I also want you to know that there will be hesitations. For those of you that can look at my text, it has pen marks all over it. And so to the wonderful storyteller today, and I believe I might have missed her name, is it Hannah, to the brilliant storyteller, Hannah, you may go, but I'm going to go on and on about you. I was touched by the reality that I have found it very difficult to put words into writing, and I have pen marks all over this, this thing that I typed. So who knows? I will have to pause to read my own writing. But in the preceding gospel text of the passage that we just read, Jesus took to, took to task the Pharisees and scribes for their ideas of purity and their judgment of those who did not conform to their standards of piety. So this was preceding the passage that we just read. Now, as if to prove his point, Jesus heads off into impure territory, the Gentile region of Tyre. Perhaps it is also true that after the encounters with the Pharisees, now just take yourself there, take a moment and just pause. Perhaps he was weary or even wanting to be left alone for a while because the text indicates he didn't want anyone to know where he was staying. It seems that Jesus is exhausted and seeking some downtime as he entered into a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. Even in this Gentile region, it seems word had spread about this Jesus. He cannot escape the demands for his healing power. For almost immediately, a woman finds Jesus at this place. Let's move into her story. Let's really understand her. Let's get beyond the text of what Mark is letting us know 
about her identity. And let's get into who this woman is based on what Mark tells us. The woman who approaches Jesus breaks through every traditional, cultural, and social barrier of the day that actually should prevent her from actually approaching Jesus. She is a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. In other words, she is likely of Greek origin, implicitly impure, one who lives outside of the land of Israel and outside of the law of Moses, a descendant of the ancient enemies of Israel. Oh, wow. She is also a woman. I repeat, could I say anything worse? She is also a woman. Unaccompanied. Unaccompanied by a husband or a male relative. She initiates a conversation with a strange man. Another taboo transgressed. On top of all this, friends... (laughs) Her daughter is possessed by a demon. Although we are not told exactly how the demon affected her daughter, we can probably guess from other stories about demon-possessed people, or I like to say people who are demon-possessed, people, that it made her act in bizarre and antisocial ways. This woman and her daughter were not the kind of family most people would, would likely invite to dinner, let alone even move towards her. Certainly ridiculed and excluded. Any way you look at it, this woman is an outsider. An outsider. I too was perceived as an outsider. Will you walk through this small part of my story with me? Would you as, as Mikhail said, lean in. That's so beautiful, such a beautiful image. Will you lean in to this? I, too, was perceived as an outsider. An Indo-Aryan brown woman, a daughter of Indian immigrants who came into this country, a country still unreconciled on identity for black and brown skin, for ethnicities that can belong and not belong, for gender bias that was acted upon with normalcy and a rightness. My parents came at a time in this country where the words accessible meant nothing for persons with disabilities or special learning needs or poverty isolation or class systems that were reflected in the neighborhoods and schools and businesses. My parents came at a time of civil unrest and racial turmoil, a time of the civil rights movement and the space race movement. A suggestion, perhaps even, do I dare say out loud amongst friends, a time when America was defined as distinctly a Christian nation, when it was truly great and yet in isolation. And yet brown, Indian, Hindu, poor immigrants like my parents saw it as an open place for opportunity and freedom. What a contrast to behold. I was born to those sojourners, alone and unfamiliar, who came with my sister, who was born in India. I was born in the USA. I'm proud to say, as I have moved to Oklahoma, I was born not in Oklahoma, but close by in the great state of Texas. (laughs) Thought I'd throw that in. Houston, Texas. Keep tracking my friends here. 
followed after I was born in 1961. You can do the math. I'm not ashamed. I'm 57. This is when you gasp in shock. <laughs> not because I should be older, but oh boy, doesn't she look better that young. Okay. My dad came to study at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He came for the space race program. For those of you that could maybe be old enough to remember, we were a country in the United States looking for great minds all over the world. We wanted to beat the Russians to the moon. He received a scholarship for his great mathematical mind. The cultural strain for life here was unbearable at times, and it was often thought we would finally just go back to India. My dad found the cultural dissonance hard, and belonging for a family was painful. Indian accents, color of skin, poor social class, and then there was the inherent ways of abusive cultural patterns in my own father's life and the worship of idol statues that made our home into a conditional space of harm and confusion. As many immigrant families did, we spent many of my formative years back and forth across the ocean between countries, living in the USA and living in India. It was when I entered the fifth grade that we decided to stay in the USA. As an immigrant family... My parents wanted us to belong. Why wouldn't they? We were encouraged to be as American as we could, at least outside our house. We could not know how to not be Indian, but that's all we thought about. I stopped speaking Hindi, only English. Even after decades, my Hindi has lost fluency. I grew up removing my accent as well. I grew up ashamed of the layers of my identity. Now, I brought two photos today, tonight. I'm going to show them to you, but I ask that they not be kept up too long. <laughs> but there are two photos, me then and now. That was the appropriate response. This is me then as a little Hindu girl worshiping many gods. And then the next picture as an adult Indian Christian woman worshiping the one Trinitarian God. Here in the first picture, I'm wearing traditional ceremonial dress in my home in the USA. I find this interesting. In the latter picture, I am in New Delhi, India, standing inside the tallest minaret in the world, an ancient historical tower called the Qutb Minar, meaning the Tower of Qutb, who was an Islamic king who overtook the Hindus and began the Muslim rule in India from the 11th and 12th centuries. I give this context, and now we don't need pictures anymore. <laughs> I give this context of a bit of my own life and identity because identity is important, and I promise you we will get to what this is all connecting to and what Mark is telling us in the passage we just read. Stay with me a little bit longer. I give this context of a bit of my own life and identity because identity is important. I repeat, identity is important. Not labels, but identity. Let us continue. It is valuable and it is for understanding each other. 
Identity is cultural and historical. The writers of the Bible took identity seriously too. The stories are filled with characteristics of people and people groups. As the writers, labels were a common place at the time. The prostitute, the leper, the poor, and so on. It made the way of knowing who was who in towns and villages throughout the region. Yet this practice need not be our practice today. For we can now realize that acknowledging our identity, our identity distinct as has never ever been to label with deficit or to give hierarchical way to treat each other. As Christians, we can see and know both visible and invisible diverse intersections of identity, but in those characteristics, we ought to see humans who created in God's image. Don't you just love Jesus? I am no longer ashamed of the layers of my identity. I know that coming from the country of India, it was highly likely I would grow up in a Hindu home. I bear no shame in that. I see myself and I see my story through Christ's open eyes now. In this distinctive way, Mark, returning to our passage now, wants to identify the person and persons in this human storyline. We must care for the stories of each other. We, We must want to know the details and the lineage and the journeys of each other. Much like Mark allows us to know a little bit of this woman, this person of great faith, a woman of this area entire, a Syrophoenician citizenship woman. It's essential to this story. Mark is making a point for us to understand Jesus and how he chose to walk into this place that she lived and to observe how Jesus saw this woman as human first, a person first, his posture with her, his presence with her, and his position with her. Do you hear the P's? I am from the teacher education field. (laughs) Got to get my learning anchors there. But we must also dig into her identity more. We're not done yet. Seeking to understand her and why her action is so courageous and reflective of who Christ is for her. Mm. May I remind you again, she is a woman, a Gentile, indeed a non-Jew, perceived and pure, one who lives outside of the land of Israel and outside the law of Moses, a descendant of the ancient enemies of Israel. She's not accompanied by a husband or even a male. And yet, it is she who courageously initiates a conversation with the strange man and feels no transgression at all. Let's continue into the story. Her daughter is possessed by a demon, a societal curse. She is able to understand the only thing that she wants is access to the one that will heal. And so she goes. And there is Jesus, who, remember, wanted to get away. Remember, didn't want anyone to know where he was. Remember, he had already been tangling with the Pharisees, trying to get them straightened out. And I don't know about you, but if you have ever had conversations with modern-day Pharisees, it is tiring. 
I know even when I wrestle with myself in conversations with me, when I'm digressing into like, you know, my own legalistic ways, I get tired just talking to myself. He was tired. But she has access because he made the way. It gets better and better. He is there and present. She approaches Jesus with a request, a plea, and a burden longing for her daughter to be healed. In the New Living Translation, it says she begs him. This is more of a plea and an assertion that he can indeed heal even her daughter without a thought to her identity or her value assessed in that day. She believed in the healing power of Jesus Christ that transcended bias and prejudice and discrimination. She said, this is the one who heals and saves all. I'm in. And she went, whew, this is so good. I'm I'm getting excited just for myself. (laughs) And there she went. He sees the person first and receives her with accessibility only assuring her she is a human to value, to access being available to her inclusively, not exclusively. Now, if you want to draw your eyes back to the passage, there is this section of when he responds to her. Now, my friends, if when you saw his response, that bugged you, that is a good sign because his response should bother you. It should be like, wait, this isn't the Jesus I know. Wait, this is what he sounds really hostile and harsh. Let's continue. It sounds like Jesus has a, has a response that has a tone of bias, a tone of prejudicial piety towards her. How could that be? Typically, when we hear Jesus speaking with irritation, it is at the Pharisees and religious leaders in their hypocritical ways, but not those on the margins, not his voice to humans coming towards them for salvation. His voice has compassion full, abundant compassion, steeped in grace and truth. How can this be? But yet, think about this. When the woman falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter, Jesus tells her, first I should feed the children of my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. The children in this statement are the children of Israel. The little dogs, Canaria, are understood to be all other peoples. In actuality, Jesus' response is harsh. How could he say that? How could he be saying, no, 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 no. I will feed who I want to feed first, and then we'll get to you. Down the hierarchical line. No. No. And when you hear something that confounds you and you know something's not right in your spirit, this isn't the right, I'm landing at the wrong place on this, start digging and find out why. Because you know God, you know God's voice, you know the Trinitarian God, you know how Christ speaks. Get underneath it and let's see what's happening here. Let me give you some things that are going on. There are some scholars who have asserted with patterned analysis, that Jesus was speaking in a way to reflect the irony of how the religious leaders would have sounded if she had approached them with her plea. Ooh, it's starting to make sense now. Some say he appears to be quoting a bit of Jewish folk wisdom. Yet that doesn't lessen the sting. Some people have proposed, scholars have proposed, that Jesus is testing the woman 
to tease out her affirmation of faith and giving her the confidence of her own intelligence and wisdom. He is acknowledging, I know you know better. Evoking a reverse psychology, if you will, so to speak, so she can come to the truth by hearing the ridiculousness of not offering her daughter healing because of her identity and standing in that culture and society, perhaps even the absurdity of how she is seen and treated by others. Jesus is being very pointed. He is a smart and wise Savior. It is thought that in this way, Jesus is compelling compelling her into knowing that those perceptions that she has been heaped and and steeped in, they are lies. They are lies. I have experienced this voice of Jesus in my life. For some reason, this is how Jesus has consistently come to me, probably because I have always doubted myself. Even today, my friends, I am sometimes Always again, that little five-year-old Indian girl. But I've experienced this voice from him, pushing me to know that I know much and I can rightly divide truth. And when I hear about injustices, oppressive actions, biases or prejudices that are laced in some sort of asserted truth, I discern that they are not the truth of God's inclusive way of love. But however Christ speaks to you, To illuminate truth and justice and equity and love, don't miss this here. It is nonetheless an unusual encounter and yet powerful to grasp. While we cannot know exactly what Jesus was thinking, it is clear that when approached by the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus' immediate response is to appeal to something that he wants us to understand. It may seem limiting, But God's love is not limiting. So, hear the courage for her to remain before the one who heals and have been healing all over the land, miracles known from the previous places he was coming from. When this tenacious mother, I repeat mother for the wonderful mothers in this room tonight, tenacious mothers, she comes back at him with this clever response. That's true, Lord. She is telling Jesus, get ready. That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. So wise, so smart, so brave, so courageous. And what does Jesus say? Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. Can't you just picture Jesus' face beaming with pride at his beautiful child, a Syrophoenician woman? He's like, yes, you nailed it. You got it right. You weren't thwarted. You, I, couldn't, I couldn't get you off the path. You knew that you knew that I am the one inclusive love savior and you will be healed. Now, I'm not trying to say to you that these are just cookie cutter ways in which God works. And if you're praying, you should get your healing. That's not what I'm saying tonight. I have prayed for certain healings in my life and for my family and healing has come in different ways. I prayed to know that when my dad died, that he knew Jesus Christ. I didn't have that assurance. 
I went through a Hindu funeral with my dad, even though I had already been walking with Christ. I went through the rituals on his behalf. We watched his body get cremated. We watched putting the ashes somewhere. We watched as we went through the Hindu rituals of the fruit and all the different things that we had to do to assure that he would find some peace in the afterlife. My brother was living in Switzerland. I had to fly with my ashes, with my father's ashes to Switzerland so that the first and only son could take the ashes of the father to the Ganges River. And there my brother received the ashes and flew to the Ganges River. I am the only Christian in my family right now. And yet, I knew that the Lord was letting me do what I had to do. I didn't have the assurance that my father knew Jesus in his last breath. I have prayed for healings, my friends. So please don't hear this in the wrong way. The point that Jesus is saying is you will not be outside of my availability That I will heal as I choose to heal, but not because of your identity. It will never have merit in what I do with my love. This is so important. Let's keep going. Jesus took a posture of affirming her, acknowledging her wisdom, honoring with his joy in her response, and encouraging her in answering rightly. He also took a position of giving her power. Can you imagine she was correcting Christ? teaching Christ? Oh, it seemed that by the way of her response as if to say, but Jesus, what about this aspect of even a bit of crumbs will be worthy of receiving healing? But you see, she knew. She knew that God in the small ways is just enough every time. This is courageous faith, my friends, for it is always just enough when God is involved. She knew Christ Knew she knew. Grasp it. She knew Christ knew she knew. Wow. Like, do you know what that feeling is when someone has confidence in you? And you know that they know you know it too? That's power. And that's what Christ did for her. She had value and worth and that nothing was going to exclude her in any way, shape, or form. For she was willing to be assured of the healing, whether through the drops of crumbs under the table. She trusted in the power of Christ's inclusive love. Hear this truth. Rejoice in it. Jesus can only agree when she gives her answer that God's love and healing power does not know any ethnic, political, or social boundaries. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Can you even take yourself into such a scene? The sweet child serenely at rest, sleeping with peace upon her. Hmm. This passage continues into another story that is immersed again into the story of another given identity who also has value in Christ. From Tyre, Jesus heads off to the region of Decapolis, also Gentile territory. Perhaps he is still seeking to escape notice and to rest a bit. Or perhaps he has a new vision of his mission beyond the borders of his home territory. In any case, once again escaping notice proves impossible. A deaf man, a man who is with a speech impediment, who has a speech impediment, was brought to him. And the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. 
Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. Then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue, looking up to heaven. He sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly the man could hear perfectly. His tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd to not tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said it again and again. Everything he does is wonderful. Everything Jesus does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Like the Syrophoenician woman, this man too is an outsider. He is cut off from the world by his inability to hear and communicate with others. This time Jesus does not hesitate to respond to the desperate request. Though he does take the man aside, away from the crowd in a very earthy scene, Jesus puts his fingers and so on and you know how he did that. Suddenly this man is able to hear and communicate. Yes, everything Christ does is wonderful. Now, the words every group of people love to hear. Now, before we come to the close, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Yes, indeed. I want to address the aspect of being identified as the marginalized and yet being grateful for crumbs. Please don't miss this. This is very important. Professor Elizabeth Quigley, she's at the Institute of Theology in Nalganga, Cameroon. She reflects on this, and we should too. So listen to her words. She says, I realize that it is easy for me to say that people on the margins can be grateful for the crumbs. Coming coming from a place of privilege as a white American. I sense that my students here at this seminary are not convinced that it is enough to have crumbs from the table. Materially speaking, that is pretty much all that they have ever had as they study to be pastors in their own country. They don't want to be told that they should be satisfied with spiritual crumbs. Ooh, this, this, this is hard. For those of us who are used to having a place at the table, perhaps we need to be reminded that none of us has any right or privilege whatsoever to claim anything with God. We all come as beggars, if you will, to the table, and it is solely by God's grace that we are fed. Perhaps we need to also be reminded that God's table is immeasurably larger than we can imagine. For those who identify more easily with the Syrophoenician woman begging for crumbs, it must be said that Jesus does not leave any of us in a state of beggarliness. He seats us at the table and claims us as God's beloved children, children from every tribe and language and nation. Even crumbs from the table would be be enough for any of us for our healing and our salvation. But Jesus is given more than enough. He sets an abundant life-giving feast for all. I cannot help but think, my friends, as we come to the end of this, about the ways I have privilege and opportunity, even juxtaposed against many Indian women who are in India right now. Dare I ever think that I can hold tight to my Indian identity as a woman, and yet not bear out the scars 
of many of my sisters, Christian sisters, Hindu sisters, Buddhist sisters in India who are struggling, still not knowing the one true God. And yet still those that do have a relationship with Christ are living a much different life than I am. Dare I think that I am not in some ways privileged. And yet my brown skin my immigrant identity, my gender, my socioeconomic class, and so on and so forth, have many times brought oppression and bias and prejudice and harm to my identity. The ways in which I heard someone say to my husband and I in the church that we should not be married. In the ways that they told my children they're going to have a hard life because they don't know if they're white or brown for the ways that people would actually think that my husband and I are not together when we're eating at a restaurant. For the ways, and this is funny, you can laugh, the ways that when we're checking out at Walmart, they ask my husband if this is on, you know, my, my, you know, is this on the same bill? And they're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, she can buy it too. (laughs) Operating in his white male privilege again. God forgive me. Okay. Let's get back, people. We're almost done. Let's bring this home. We ought to think about the aspects of our identity, your identity. Who are the people groups that you identify with? What is your ethnic identity? What's your lineage? When did your families come and go and move into places and spaces? Not just individual identity, but, but people group identity. What labels do we carry and others carry? It matters a great deal if we are to be the ones that truly embody the ministry of reconciliation. Like Jesus and as his disciples, we are continually called to a larger vision of mission. One that aims to embrace the outsider, lest we ever be the outsider ourselves. Dare we ever think that we'll always be the insider? Somewhere, somehow, we all are on the outside because it's always been God and his created beings. Always. It's always been God and we. Always. What is our view of a person or a people? What is our posture, our presence, and our position with others and each other? Can we reflect on these stories in light of the recent resurgence of what's going on around us and in us and through us in our own world? Nationalism, racism, xenophobia, Western cultural norms, forsaking different cultures, ideologies often often promoted by us, the very ones who walk with Christ and yet totally antithetical to the gospel, opposite of the gospel. The gospel is the glory of the kingdom of God coming near, coming here through and in God's love. And so you'll read about this in your weekly practice, but I want to point out this woman to you, Pandita Ramabai of India. She lived in, from 1858 to 1920, and she said this, which so perfectly embodies the Syrophoenician woman in Jesus. People must not only hear about the kingdom of God, but must see it in actual operation, on a small scale perhaps, 
And yes, and in imperfect form, but a real demonstration nonetheless. Pandita, Pandita has inspired and influenced my growth as a Christian and my understanding. I carry her life work in me. She was a social reformer, a champion for the emancipation of women, and a pioneer of education in her home in India. Women, ch- girl children, must Go to school, she said. Must go to school. She was raised Hindu. She began following Christ after reading the story of Jesus' encounter of the Samaritan woman in John 4. And she said this, I realize that no one, no one but he could transform and uplift the downtrodden women of India. Thus my heart was drawn to the religion of Christ. Pandita began a school for women, personally rescued thousands of abandoned children and women during a time of severe famine in her region and translated the Bible into her mother tongue of Marathi from the original Hebrew and Greek. What a demonstration of love, God's inclusive love. We are all invited in the inclusive, into the inclusive love of God. May we walk in Jesus' declaration. Ivata, be open and to walk in courageous faith with each other in God's inclusive love. Just like the Syrophoenician woman, like Pandita, just like you and me, rush into the unfamiliar with excitement. Go to others not like you. Explore access to each other, because it is there that we will embody the spirit of a living God together with each other. May it be so. May it be so. Let's pray as we move into communion. Father God, as we, as we seal your word today, we do not do so with a complete period at the end of that. It is simply a, and then what? And so as we leave this time of learning and growing together, may we be ever assured that there is nothing, nothing in our identities that keeps you from us and that we can go boldly towards you with access and that you will respond to us in ways that we will know that we belong and you long for us to come into salvation and belong into your love. So we thank you and we praise you and give you glory, glory and honor that we would be part of what you always intended to reconcile your people back into your love. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I don't know that there could be a better invitation to the table of Christ. That we have been given full access to sit together. And so in just a moment as our servers are preparing, I'll invite you to come forward, uh, move to the left side of your row, and then come down to one of the servers and return back on the right-hand side. When you come, would you come with your hands cupped ready to receive the bread that will be placed in your hands and then dip it into the juice. And you'll hear the servers saying some words to you. Listen carefully to them. We receive this good gift. It is not that we take it. And so receive with a very, very full and glad heart. And know that because this table has been open wide. It is not a Nazarene table. 
It is not an Eight Street members only table. It's not a white table or a brown table or a black table or any other labeled kind of table. This is the table of Jesus Christ. And if you, as the Syrophoenician has shown us, are courageous, and if you are longing for what it is that he has to offer here, this table is yours. Our bread is gluten-free and our cup is non-alcoholic because we too want to make sure that there are no barriers keeping you from this space of receiving the best gifts. So as you are ready, friends, come to receive this very, very good gift, the bread and the blood of Jesus Christ.